Pacific Positions on the Israel-Hamas War, Coalition Talks in New Zealand, Lots of Australia Foreign Policy, and more. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. And welcome back to Pacific Airwaves, a podcast on the Pacific Islands from the Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. I'm Monica Sato with my co-host Andreka Natalegawa. Andreka, Thanksgiving's coming up, and I wanted to ask you what you're thankful for these days. You know, Monica, I'm just thankful that Congress managed to avoid a government shutdown for now. What about you, Monica? I was thinking. I'm really thankful to our listeners for tuning into this podcast. We think it's great that you're interested in a region that might be overlooked sometimes. You also give us a great excuse to nerd out about Pacific issues. And I look forward to it every time. Let's get into the issues, shall we? Yes, we'll start with the Israel-Hamas war, which is having reverberations 10,000 miles away in the Pacific Islands. But before we begin the discussion, I would like to acknowledge that this issue is both intricate and sensitive, and that we are only touching upon the issue broadly and focusing on its relevance to the Pacific. Andreka, would you care to start us off? Six Pacific Island nations, including Fiji, the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, and Tonga, were among just 13 countries to join Israel in opposing a United Nations General Assembly resolution calling for a ceasefire. Among countries that voted against the resolution, they account for just 3% of the population, but over 40% of the votes, which shows the Pacific Islands' outsized influence in the General Assembly. Their support for Israel seems to be caused by several factors. First, I think it's important to note that Pacific support for Israel is nothing new. Micronesia and the Marshall Islands have been particularly supportive of Israel. Last year, they each took a pro-Israel stance in over 80% of UN votes. Their close ties with Israel go back to their independence, when Israel was one of the first countries to recognize them as sovereign states. Fiji is another country that has historical ties to Israel. They're the highest per capita contributor to UN peacekeeping missions, and most Fijian peacekeepers serve on Israel's border with Egypt. Papua New Guinea has also been moving closer toward Israel recently, as evidenced by their government's opening of an embassy in Jerusalem in September. Religious beliefs seem to play an important factor behind many Pacific Island countries' support for Israel. Most Pacific Islanders practice Christianity and identify Israel as sacred ground, which PNG Prime Minister James Marape explicitly cited when he opened the new embassy in Jerusalem. At the time of Hamas's attack, more than 200 Pacific Islanders were on a pilgrimage to Israel. Although faith clearly drives much of Pacific-Israel relations, Fiji Prime Minister Sitiveni Rabuka said that the country's vote on the UN ceasefire resolution was based on sovereignty and Hamas's actions, not religious beliefs. Despite the notable votes, not all Pacific Islanders were against the ceasefire. Four countries, including Kiribati, Palau, Tuvalu, and Vanuatu, abstained from the vote, and the Solomon Islands and New Zealand supported it. Fiji's vote was also controversial at home. Former Prime Minister Frank Marama attacked the vote for going against fundamental principles of humanity, peace, and justice. He also expressed concern for the safety of Fijian peacekeepers in the Middle East. Turning to multilateral engagement within the Indo-Pacific, Last week, leaders from across the region gathered in San Francisco to attend the APEC Summit, or the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea are the three countries who are official members from the Pacific. This year's APEC Summit focused on creating a resilient and sustainable future for all. As hosts, the United States emphasized its commitment to work on key issues such as supply chain resilience, digital trade and connectivity, climate change, and environmental sustainability all of which align with Australia, New Zealand, and PNG's regional priorities as well. Prime Minister Marape of PNG also met with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris on the sidelines of APEC, where she underscored U.S. commitment to the Pacific Islands and praised PNG's role as a regional leader of APEC. 
They also discussed further avenues for bilateral security and economic cooperation, including building upon the defense cooperation agreement that their two countries signed in May of this year. Prime Minister-elect Christopher Luxon of New Zealand decided to skip this year's summit. He said it would be nice to go, but that he needed to close out ongoing coalition negotiations. Instead, a representative of the Labour caretaker government attended. Luxon said that if he had gone to the summit, his message would be that New Zealand is open for business again. Instead, Luxon met with ACT and New Zealand First party leaders in Auckland last week. ACT leader David Seymour said that they made progress on tax issues, which had emerged as a sticking point. Now the parties are negotiating over ministerial positions and policies. But as Deputy Labour leader Carmel Cipolloni observed, bringing those three parties together is not going to be easy. While New Zealand focuses on its domestic issues, Australia has been making waves in D.C. and Beijing. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese paid a visit to the White House in late October. He and President Biden lauded the long history between their countries, and Albanese was sure to point out that the U.S.-Australia partnership is not a pact against a common enemy, but a pledge to a common cause. The two leaders announced a plan to build maritime infrastructure and lay undersea cables in the Pacific Islands. They also encouraged U.S. space companies to launch from Australia and welcomed Microsoft's announcement of a $3 billion investment in Australian cybersecurity, cloud computing, and artificial intelligence. Two weeks later, Albanese traveled to Beijing to meet with President Xi. The leaders emphasized warming relations, but significant disagreements remain. Albanese's priority was Chinese tariffs that he said should be removed. Other friction points include China's imprisonment of Australian writer Yang Hengjun and Canberra's tightening defense relationship with Washington. Xi said the two countries were on the path to becoming trusting partners, but Albanese said that we need to cooperate with China where we can, disagree where we must, and engage in our national interest. Australia hasn't just been playing with the great powers this month. On the sidelines of the Pacific Island Forum Summit earlier this month, Australia and Tuvalu signed the Fellapili Union. This agreement makes Australia Tuvalu's partner of choice and creates a special Australian visa, allowing entry for up to 280 Tuvaluans per year. That's about 2.5% of Tuvalu's population. In about 40 years, Tuvalu won't have anyone left. Well, that's the concern, actually. Tuvalu is one of the lowest-lying island countries in the world, so the country's leadership is concerned that sea level rise could make their islands uninhabitable. One of the agreement's goals is to offer opportunities for Tuvaluans to work and go to school in Australia rather than arriving as helpless refugees. In the meantime, Australia will fund land reclamations around Tuvalu's capital, Funafuti. There's also security dimension to the agreement. It provides a mechanism for Australia to aid Tuvalu in the event of military aggression, a natural disaster, or a public health crisis. In return, Australia gets an effective veto over Tuvalu's security arrangements with other states. You might think of the Fellapili Union as Tuvalu's way of addressing the Pacific's two rising challenges, climate change and growing security competition. These two issues were at the top of the agenda throughout the Pacific Islands Forum Summit. Pacific leader statements emphasize that the top policy priority for the region is addressing climate change and that they do not want their policies to be dictated by geostrategic competition. And that about covers it for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pacific Airwaves. If you listen to our sister podcast, Southeast Asia Radio, we're asking listeners to submit questions for our special holiday episode in December. So feel free to write us or submit questions to searadio at csis.org if there's any topic you want us to cover. And if you're not following us already, please subscribe or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite streaming platform. 
Our producer is Marla Hiller. Special thanks to our intern, Josiah Gottfried, for his assistance with this episode. And with that, I'm Monica Sato. And I'm Andreka Natsulagawa. And we'll see you next month for another episode of Pacific Airwaves. Pacific Airwaves.